Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. You can find this on page 282 in the Pew Bible, and I will be reading from the New King James Version. It's the same translation you have in your pew there. And while you're turning there, maybe I could just ask the children if... um, this is maybe a little bit of a tricky question. How many judges altogether are we going to learn about in the book of Judges? Okay, you think you know? Oh, excellent. Twelve. Just a sidebar, if you're asked a question that has a numerical answer about the Bible, seven and twelve are the two best guesses. So uh, twelve it is. So there are going to be twelve. Okay, so how many have we covered so far? Does anyone know? Have you? Yes? Oh, okay. That is so insightful. I, yeah. I don't know who yelled that, but yeah. You deserve a Snickers bar. Okay, yes, Adam. Yes, four. It's actually four. Okay, so that was tricky, wasn't it? So we, we made it through the first third of our judges. And if you remember... Uh, that first judge, Othniel, and then Ehud, and then we had uh, Shamgar, one that we've hardly ever heard of with the ox goad, and then last week, this kind of team of Deborah and Barak. So one of the things we've noted is that in the, in the presentation of these first four judges, the judges are presented as pretty much without flaw, or at least without major flaw. And now as we start into uh, the latter part of these judges, we're going to get the fifth judge, and we're just going to introduce him today. Uh, But you'll see that the story starts to get way more complicated and that the judges themselves uh, are not always the paragons of virtue that we might expect or like in a judge. And in fact, in this way, they sort of reflect what's going on in the people. So today we start Gideon, And this is the longest section in the book. It's four chapters, and we're just going to introduce Gideon today. We're going to talk more about the state of the situation uh, where he comes on the scene. But then we'll have several weeks to look at Gideon and his ministry. And then eventually we'll get to the seventh judge in a couple more weeks. But it'll take a little while before we get there. All right, well, let's give attention then to God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 Our focus will really be on verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joas, the Ebezerite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And there we'll end the reading of God's word and ask that the Lord will bless it to us as we consider it together this morning. There's an interesting uh, documentary on Prime right now that recounts the rise of the English Premier Soccer League. So if you're interested in professional soccer, football, uh, it, it covers sort of season by season the development of what has become the most popular professional league in the country. And as we were watching that last week, uh, they talked about a young player who had tremendous promise and uh, was recruited from uh, his youth. He played in the youth program, and then he became part of the professional team. But what was going on behind the scenes? He was having a lot of success on the field, but uh, he had some downtime, and some of the other players took him uh, gambling, and he got hooked on gambling. And so he had, he had an addiction that was uh, just dominating his life, and he talked about the fact that he was losing thousands of pounds uh, a day sometimes, even went to the point of betting on games he was playing in, uh, just, you know, how many goals they would score, and actually being on the field hoping his team didn't score another goal uh, because it, it would go one over, over his bet. So uh, it really unraveled, and it talked about how the, the club, once this all came out, and the reason it finally came out is because one of the bookies who could not believe how much this guy was spending uh, sold the story to one of the, the uh, newspapers, and so this all came out, the secret life that he had been living. And the, and the team sort of uh, tried to provide some help, but it, it was very clear that they didn't get close to dealing with kind of the radical inner heart issues that, were, that needed adjustment, and so he continued to struggle with this uh, for years, and it really was a sad story. Uh, this is sort of what we see in our book as we are again told about the Israelites returning to their sins. This, this, this pattern repeats itself over and over again. And what's happening is they're, they're not dealing with the core problem. This is often the way it is for us. Often we look at the problems, uh, maybe the symptoms of what's going on in our life and the sin struggles in our life, and we kind of want the symptoms to be dealt with but we're a lot uh, more reluctant to actually get into the serious heart issues and get at the root of the problem. And so here we have in this opening section of the story of Gideon an opportunity to look at this aspect of the challenge facing the people of Israel, that they continue in their sin. And how is it that God approaches them? And there's a lot for us to learn because what we see here is that God not only uses his word 
to pinpoint uh, the real problem we're facing, right? The sin that's behind maybe the symptoms, but God also provides a savior who enables us to turn away from our sin and to follow the Lord. And really the call of the text is that we would listen to God as he speaks to us through his word, turn away from our sin and experience that freedom that comes from him. And so uh, children, if you wanna draw a picture today, you could draw the Midianites, uh, this group of people that, that they're nomadic people who come in with their tents riding on camels. Uh, because this is the first enemy that we've read about that has camels. So maybe you could even draw a camel for me. And let's listen to then what God will teach us. Well, there is an outline in your bulletin. The first thing I want you to notice is that sometimes suffering comes into your life because of your sins. Certainly not the only way that suffering comes into our life, but that is, in fact, one of the ways that suffering comes into our lives. Uh, You remember how chapter 5 ended. The land had rest for 40 years. This great victory of uh, Barak and Deborah and Jael over Sisera and and Jabin uh, leads to a period of 40 years of peace. There's no war going on. But verse 1 in our text tells us this cycle keeps repeating itself. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So uh, we know what that means because this has happened before. They want to fit in with the pagan culture that they're around. They want to succeed and be materially prosperous. And so what they want to do really is just add worship of the pagan gods to their worship of God. It's not that they're not worshiping God at all. They just think they should be able to worship the pagan gods as well. That helps them fit in with their neighbors and, uh, and, and that just makes life easier for them. Matthew Henry speaking about this says, The burnt child dreads the fire, yet this perverse, unthinking people that had so often smarted sorely for their idolatry upon a little respite of God's judgments return to it again. So children, do you understand what Matthew Henry is saying there? He's saying you you stick out your hand and you burn it on the stove. And and even a child knows um, not to go do that again. And yet here are the people of Israel, they just keep going back again and again to the same stove to get their hand burned. Uh, That's how bad the situation is. And so what happens in the second half of verse 1 is that God delivers them into the hand of Midian. So again, another cycle begins. Only as one commentator said, uh, now begins the downward plunge Because from this point in the book on, um, we we see that the stories start to get much more complicated. And we have a lot more text. As I said earlier, this is the, in fact, the the longest story of all the judges that we have. But there are other uh, long ones. And so we start to get details about how they're oppressed and what's happening to them. And everything gets more complicated and because this is the trend of the book that the the whole people and the nation are spiraling down away from God as they continue to engage in their sin and so verses the second half of verse one uh, through verse six sort of explain to us what happens Um, so Midian uh, comes up from the south so the Midianites were a nomadic people lived in tents And uh, they lived down south towards the Gulf of Aqaba, south of Israel's territory. 
And they come up, and it says they come along with the Amalekites and the people of the east, so other uh, of these kind of nomadic people coming up from the south. They come all the way around on the east, and they come in across the Jordan River. And they come actually right back into that area we read about last week, the last two weeks with Gideon, the Jezreel Valley, which is the, the breadbasket where all the crops are and the, and the, the best uh, farmland is. And this says that it, they went through there and then all the way down into Gaza, which is on the west uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea. So they're basically just coming in and they're coming in in such vast numbers. Their goal is that they don't want to rule these people. They're not trying to govern Israel. They're just eating their food. They wait until Israel plants their crops, and then they come up with their tents and their families and all their livestock, and they just eat all the food that Israel planted. And they're so vast. uh, Here the text likens them to locusts. It's just too many of them, and they're armed. And so it's, it's, it's not that they're coming with a giant army. It's just they're coming, sitting down, and eating uh, all of their food. I, I saw there was a story in the news about a family that had to get the, the law enforcement to help kick the squatters out of their house. They had a house that was under construction, and these people just came and moved in. And, and then they got them out, and as soon as the, the, the authorities left, they came back. And they said, you know, it's, it's insane, but in, in some of the, the, the municipalities in our, in our country, uh, the squat, squatters have rights and things like that. Well, this is what the Midianites were doing. They came in, and they were just squatting and, um, and eating all of their food, and they did this for seven years. And understand that this, again, like we've seen before, the punishment uh, fits the crime because God had done this very thing to the pagans who were in this land before the Israelites. I put as an example Joshua uh, verse, chapter 24, verse 13. And there God said to the people after the conquest of this land, I've given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Right? This, this is what had God had done to the pagans. He had taken their land and given it to the Israelites. And now he's basically saying, okay, you want to worship the pagan gods? I'll treat you like the pagans. You want to take your produce and offer it uh, to Baal? Uh, Then you can just be treated like uh, the Baal worshipers you are. In fact, this is exactly what God warned would happen. I gave you an extended quotation in the bulletin from Leviticus 24, verses 14 to 17. And there God warned them, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And this is exactly what had happened to them. In fact, the text tells us that they were moving out of their homes, finding caves and crevices in the mountain in which to live, reduced to living like animals, the people of God. And it's an amazing reversal because God used them to conquer this land and now they're hiding in holes in the ground 
like animals. And as verse 6 says, Israel was greatly impoverished. And that could be translated, they were made very low, uh, right? Materially, but well as uh, spiritually. Now, recognize that many of us suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. And under God's divine wisdom, we have medical issues, we have injuries, we suffer loss. We think of the people uh, in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio. Um, It's not their sin that caused the train to derail and all these toxic chemicals to be spilled in their area. Now, it might have been somebody else's sin, but it probably wasn't their sin. It's a tragedy uh, that comes upon them because sin is in the world and because we live in a fallen uh, world. These kind of things happen. But it also sometimes happens that our own sin leads more directly to the suffering that we experience. And that's what's going on here. It's very clear in verse 1. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. This was a direct consequence of their sin. And it would be nice if we could say, whenever I suffer, it's because of other people's sin, or it's because I live in a fallen world. But if we're honest with ourselves, we cannot say that. Because there are times where we suffer because of our own sin. Our sin leads to suffering. And this is what the text encourages you to, to wrestle with. It's, it's my anger or my lack of self-control or my selfishness or my inability to control my tongue or my laziness or my obsessive personality or whatever it is that leads very directly into difficulties and pain and suffering sometimes. And you and I have to be honest about that fact. Sometimes suffering comes into our lives because of our own sin. But secondly, we see in this text here the proper response to your sin is repentance. It's not just regret. Uh, We're told at the end of verse 6 that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. This is also something we've seen before. Verse 7 describes it this way. It came to pass When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, we'll finish that sentence in a minute. It seems from the text, once again, that their crying out to the Lord is a cry of pain. It's not a cry of repentance. And and we sort of get the sense of this because of how God responds to them. We'll see that in a minute. But also, as it says here, they cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, not because of their own sin in turning away from God and mixing in the worship of idols with God. That's not what was breaking their hearts or causing them to cry out. It was the pain that they were experiencing because of the Midianites. And, and this is an important distinction. We've, we've discussed this before in this series, that having regret, that being sorry that something happened is not the same thing as genuine repentance. Again, quoting from 2 Corinthians, which we read earlier in the service, but we want to look at in a little more detail. And Paul said, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. 
For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world, that's regret, produces death. For observing this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And, and what was the result for that, right? It's not just that they were sorry that it happened. It's not just that they didn't like the consequences or the difficulties it created. They were actually sorry about violating God's word and offending a holy God. And what he says there in verse 11, look what happened as a result of genuine godly sorrow or genuine repentance. He said, what, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So the idea is that there's a response that, that really involves turning away from that sin, turning to God and pursuing God. And, 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 and this is what was lacking in the people of God, but this is what brings life uh, the Bible tells us, and why it's so crucial for us when we are aware of our sin to deal with it uh, honestly and turning from it and turning to the Lord because that's where we find life because it's only in the Lord where we have a solution for sin, where we find healing. Now, if we were to keep reading uh, beyond the book of Judges, you see what happens uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, the people cry out for a king, and God gives them a king. You remember the first king, uh, children, was a man named Saul, who was taller than everybody else. That was his main uh, attribute that got him elected king or chosen king. So Saul as the king, and you'll remember one of the first things he does is disobey God. And the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, God is taking the kingdom away from you. You've disobeyed God. And what's his response? He tells Samuel, Samuel, walk with me in front of the people. He's, all he's worried about is how it looks in front of the people. Don't, don't turn away from me and embarrass me in front of the people. He's not sorry that he's broken God's law, that he's, he's violated the sacred trust that he was given. That doesn't break his heart. He's just worried about his reputation. And this is so often the way it is with us. We want to sort of do damage control make sure things don't look too bad and uh, minimize what's going on. But we never really deal with the real issue, which is our sin in some ways, whether it's our, our selfishness, our desire to go our own way and not to follow God, uh, the angry outburst in our family that causes all this hurt, and then we, we can sort of afterwards, we don't like all the, the tension that creates, we can offer a mild uh, sorry, but that uh, just keeps happening over and over Again, So God calls us to genuine repentance. That's not perfection, but that's a genuine turning from our sin to him. So thirdly, then, what you need most in such situations is a word from God to help you interpret what's going on in your life. Uh, this is very fascinating, and, and it's different than what we've seen in the first four judges. Because it says in verse 7, they, you know, they're, they're in desperation. They cry out to the Lord because of the Midianites. And verse 8 tells us the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. They cry out because they're oppressed. God sends a preacher to preach a sermon to them. 
And one of the commentators says, this is like you're, you're stranded on the side of the road, you call for a mechanic, and the mechanic sends out a philosopher. Now, hey, no offense to any philosophers that we have here. Um, that was just the illustration that he used. But it's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it makes sense at first. It doesn't seem like this is what we really need now. Like we need another Barak. We, we need another Shamgar. We don't need this unnamed preacher coming. But actually, this is very much a part of God's work. Uh, because this is God loving them and doing for them what's better than they think or would do for themselves. Ralph Davis commenting on this says, one of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reasons for our helplessness and misery. And this is fascinating because what God is saying here, it's more important for you to understand why this is happening to you than it is for me to take away the suffering you're experiencing. The higher priority is that you interpret this situation properly. And then only once you understand, then uh, the deliverance will come. We had a a fun time talking with some of our grown children along with uh, another family in the church. And we were reflecting on uh, the procedure whereby the children learn to sit quietly uh, in the pews, as you all are doing so well this morning. And it's fun to hear, you know, your adult children talk about how they remember this happening. And the fact that this was one of the places where a kid thinks, because of the corporate setting, uh, you can't get me. And so really early on, you have to make it clear, oh no, uh, I can get you and I will get you if you disturb this worship service. And so uh, we talked about how, you know, we had a place we would go downstairs. We had a particular implement in the kitchen that we liked to use. It only got used there. And the kids could still describe it uh, after this time. But you see that this is effective. The learning takes place because uh, consequences are paired with an explanation, right? The expectations are laid out very clearly. and, And then... When the expectations aren't met, um, that's explained, but there are consequences. And it's amazing, right? Even even Jane can sit quietly through the service now, right? Uh, Sweet Jane. Um, She was not the difficult one. Um, But but this is is how, uh, you know, parenting works. And God is a good and gracious parent. And so he's, he's actually loving these people and then he's not just letting them go off and, and serve these pagan gods. He's bringing difficult consequences into their lives, but he's also bringing a messenger to explain to them why this is happening and, and what is causing it. And, and this is a helpful reminder to us too because when suffering and, and sometimes sin are coming into our lives, we need God's word to help us interpret what is happening. Now, I'll, I'll say it again. Our suffering is not always caused by our own sin, and, and we need to help understand that too. But when we're dealing with difficult circumstances, we really need God's word to help us understand to the, to the, as much as he allows us what is going on. And so we, we must read it. We must meditate on it. We must sing it. Uh, we must discuss it. We must c- uh, come to hear it preached. And so often when, when things are difficult, 
uh, our impulse sometimes is to get away from everybody else, to get away from church, to, to get away from God's word. And, and that's the, the worst thing that we could do because we, we need to turn to the Lord and, and, and his word and to ask him to speak to us. Our common response is, Lord, take this thing away from me. And it's, it's fine to pray that way. But we, what this is reminding you is you really need to be praying, Lord, help me to understand and to learn from this situation what you want me to learn. And that should be our starting place, even in times of very difficult struggle. So what you need most in suffering is a word from God helping you interpret what's going on in your life. Fourthly, we see here that God graciously uses his word to pinpoint your real, and, and here when I say real, I mean underlying problem. We see this in verses 8 through 10. This is the message that God sends through this unnamed prophet uh, preaching to them. Uh, the Lord sent the prophet, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And, and what he does is he begins by saying, This is who I am, and this is what I have done for you. I brought you up. Uh, from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. You were slaves and you had no power and you were kept in the greatest, most powerful nation on the earth and I broke their power and I brought two million of you out of slavery. That's what I did, as God is telling them. What else did God do? Well, I, he delivered them from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land all right, so he, he, he took them out of Egypt through the wilderness into this promised land. And, and they defeated people mightier and more numerous than they were so that God could give them uh, their own place uh, to live and to be safe. And in verse 10, he, he did something even greater. He said, I am the Lord your God. He, he took them to be his people. This is the grace that he poured out on them. So this is what he's done to them for them. And so as, as someone who's done all that for them, he, he has a right to ask them uh, something from them. Uh, ch children, if your mom says to you, hey, I want you to do something for me, uh, should your response be A, again? Or B, um, wow, mom, uh, you're the reason I'm alive? Uh, you and dad feed me, clothe me, house me, provide everything for me, educate me, teach me about God. Every good thing I have in life comes from you. I'll, wh whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Which one of those is the right answer? A or B? Excellent. Got it. B. That was not a trick question. And so here comes God saying to these people, Here's all I've done for you. I, I'm only asking you one thing. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. All you have to do is not worship idols. Like It's not even complicated. J just keep worshiping me and forget about the idols. That, that's all they had to do. And, but what is their response? The end of verse 10, but you have not obeyed my voice. You said no. That's an unreasonable request coming from you, God. We refuse to not worship the, the, the false gods around us. And, and so you see how completely outrageous 
it is. And, and this, is the, this is the preacher putting his finger on what the real problem is. Your real problem, Israelites, isn't the Midianites. Your real problem is yourselves and your hearts and your unwillingness to love and obey God like you should. Now, I like to read the, the, the comic strips in the papers. That is a bad admission or not, but I do. And uh, I like Hagar the Horrible. I don't read them all, but I read some of them. And Hagar is one that I read. And so Hagar, you know, comes in from battle. He's a Viking, for those of you who don't read it. And he's got like an axe, a battle axe, through his helmet kind of in the top of his head. It's, you can, in the cartoons, you can do things like that. And so he comes in, and he's like, I've got a headache. And, and kind of this discussion is, we should get you some aspirin, you know. And, uh, and you're realizing, of course, that that's not your problem, Hagar. Your problem isn't that you have a headache. Uh, it's that you have an axe that's going through your helmet into the top of your head. That's what you need to deal with. And, and that seems ridiculously obvious, but that's what's going on in this passage. That there's a serious underlying problem and they don't see it. All they see is, hey, these Midianites are coming up here and they're eating our food. And it's so typical of us. We get focused on the symptoms of the problem and, and, and not the actual problem. I've got relationship problems. You know, I, I have conflict in my relationships and, and that becomes the focus. And, and that's not the real issue at all. The real issue is, is maybe I'm a person who's manipulative and, and who's using people for things. And, and it's, it's my own self-focus when I approach my relationships. That's why I have difficulty in my relationships. This is kind of the idea that, that God here with his word puts his finger on what the real problem is for his people so that they will address the real issue. And again, for us, rather than ask God, God, help me to have better relationships. Lord, help me to understand why I have conflict in my relations. What am I doing to contribute to this situation? And God is gracious in his word to reveal to us things that we may not fully grasp. And you see here how it's so problem, uh, so important that we have friends in Christ who can come alongside us and help us to think these things through and help us to use the word of God effectively. Uh, we sang from Psalm 119 earlier in the service, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is a tremendous help to us to identify where it is that I've really gone off the rails here and how it is that I will fight this in the strength that God gives. So. You need help. God's word graciously provides it by putting his, his finger on the real problem. But even more, we see in this text that God provides a savior who enables you to turn away from your sin and to follow him. So God's word is invaluable in terms of helping you identify the sin in your life that needs to be addressed. God's word highlights that sin it helps you grapple with it, but God's word cannot actually change your heart. God's word cannot make you a person who obeys, who turns from your sin and turns to following God. And for that, you need a savior. 
Now we're going to dive into this much more in subsequent weeks. But notice at this point that Israel's continual repeat of this sin cycle doesn't stop God from saving them. He has taken them to be his people. He is patient and he continues to work with them. So when we read in verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Ophrah, we, we, we read about God's continuing to persevere with his people. And here we have a representative of God who is described later as God himself coming. And what does he say to Gideon, who's hiding away, threshing in the wine press? In verse 12, he says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now we're going to talk next week about how uh, Gideon responds to this. But the amazing thing is here God comes despite Gideon's weaknesses, despite the people's weaknesses. And what does he say? I am with you. I am with you. I haven't abandoned you, even though you deserve to be abandoned. I'm with you still to help you and to bring you back to your senses. And this is what God does for you if you are his child. Your repeated failures don't cause him to turn his back on you. He forgives you and he renews your heart and he brings you into obedience to him. Tim Keller, in speaking about this in his commentary, said, God does not begin to save us because we repent. We repent because he's begun his saving work in us. And that's really helpful, that it's God's prior work in us that, that is what enables us to start to repent, to turn away from our sin and to turn toward him. And, and this, of course, is the work of Jesus Christ, because Jesus breaks the power of sin over you. Galatians 4, 7 says, therefore you are no longer a slave. And he's talking here about being a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Jesus breaks the power of sin to hold us in bondage. We still struggle with it, but we're not slaves to it anymore. And his grace works in us to help us more and more to turn away from that sin and to turn to following him. Now, Jesus does this by putting himself under the power of sin in our place and suffering uh, what we deserve to suffer and then rising from the dead victorious over it so that he lives forever to intercede for us and to help us in this way. And, and really what's implied here by how verse 10 ends where he says you have not obeyed my voice what should they have done they should have listened they should have listened to God and done what he told them to and that's the same application for you and for me to recognize through the savior that God sends Jesus Christ we have forgiveness and grace to be able to turn away from those areas of our life where we're still sinning and he says, what's the response? The response is, listen to me. Obey me. I will enable you to do this. Do what I am enabling you to do. I know Philip prayed earlier in the service for uh, the victims of the earthquake. And they're now saying that the number of, of dead is maybe as high as 46,000. The number keeps going up of the number of people of dead. And, and it was fascinating, even last week, 
some of the, the stories that were coming out in the midst of this terrible tragedy. Uh, people who had been buried in the rubble, uh, some as many as 10 days, uh, were rescued. Um, some children, uh, some young adults, and coming out of, of being trapped under a pile of rubble, you realize those people, they didn't need uh, someone to uh, hand them an instruction guide for how to get out from under rubble. They didn't need someone to hand them a shovel. They needed someone to come and lift the building off of them and bring them out. And, and that, by God's grace, is what some of them got. And, and this is our situation when it comes to our sin. Uh, you all who are here to study Pilgrim's Progress, right? why is it pictured as a heavy burden that he cannot lift? Right? This is why we need a Savior who comes in and takes the burden off of us and saves those who are dead in their sin. And if you have come to faith in Christ, recognize you, you continue to rely on Christ every day to help you turn away from the sin that you continue to battle and to turn toward him and to acknowledge sometimes we suffer because of our sin but God graciously shows that to you through his word and you and I need to receive that word as we receive that savior who enables us to obey to listen to him and to turn away uh, from the sin in our lives and by God's grace we can rejoice that he not only uses his word to help us identify those areas, but he sends a savior to help you, to enable you to turn away and to follow him. Let's give him thanks for his great work. Heavenly Father, we continue to give you thanks for this book. Um, and it, it tells a sad story in some ways because if we focus on your people, uh, we are reminded again and again of their failings. But we recognize that your people aren't the main characters, and it, really the judges aren't the main characters. You are the main character in this story. And so we are brought again and again back to what you do, uh, even though your people don't do what they should do. How we thank you, Lord, that this is a picture of how you treat us. Uh, we continue to wrestle with sin in our lives. And sometimes that causes uh, pain and sorrow. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are gracious not to let us go our own way, but to show us our need to get our attention and then to use your word to help us to see what's really going on. Lord, how we need that. And we pray that we would be more faithful in turning to your word. But Lord, then... To, to remind us that we can't do it with just a Bible and ourself. Uh, we need a Savior who lifts this burden for us and who bears the sin and who gives us grace so that we can turn away from it and obey you. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our faith and hope in him. And, uh, Lord, that you would help us to trust him every day and that you would be at work helping us to turn away from those areas in our life that need attention and that we would turn to follow you wholeheartedly and that you would be glorified among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's uh, sing in praise to the Lord from Psalm 119.
we've hit this psalm pretty hard today, but this is the longest, uh, actually the longest book uh, chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, so we're going to sing from Selection E this time. And again, you see this idea that not only does God's word show us what is right, but God himself helps us, enables us to do what is right. So uh, we pray here that I may keep your statutes, Lord, instruct me in their way. Yes, make me wise to keep your law. Wholehearted, I'll obey. Lead me to walk in your commands. They bring me joy indeed. We're, We're looking to the Lord to be the one that enables us to live as he wants. Let's stand and we'll sing in praise to him. <clears throat> 